What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. We are so happy you're here. On today's show, we have the brilliant Brenda Elsie, a professor of history at Hofstra University in New York, the excellent Shireen Ahmed, a writer, public speaker, and sports activist in Toronto, and me, I'm Jessica Luther, freelance journalist and author in Austin, Texas. On this week's show, we're going to discuss racism in sport, an evergreen topic at Burn It All Down. Then we'll turn our attention to Pyeongchang and the upcoming Winter Olympics that are less than 90 days away. With the forever caveat about the damage this mega event often does to the local community, we're going to focus on the athletes who are preparing for the Games. And then, following up and adding to the conversation Lindsay had last week with journalist Hannah Beavis about women's hockey, Shireen interviews Kalia Johnson, a professional ice hockey player for the Boston Pride in the National Women's Hockey League. And we'll cap it all off by burning things that deserve to be burned and doing shout-outs to women who deserve shout-outs. Then we'll have a final, special segment where Stacey May Fowles, past Burn It All Down guest, sports writer, and author of Baseball Life Advice, remembers pitcher Roy Holiday, who passed away earlier this week. Let's get into it. All right, Shereen, here we are again forever probably, talking about racism in sport. Where do you want to start today? Thanks, Jess. This is something we've covered a lot and burned it all down, and we're just going to delve into it a little bit. Just as sport has brought countless joys since the beginning of time, I might offer up that systems of power and oppression may have infiltrated sport from the start as well. Among vicious undercurrents of sport are cultures of racism that have thrived and festered. Whether it is athletes, making horrible racist gestures, such as the most recent incident involving Colombian footballer Edwin Cordona towards South Korea in an international friendly in which Song Hyung Min scored twice to beat Colombia with any type of reprimand or punishment to be decided. This is just days after Houston Astros won the World Series and after Yuli Gurriel, first baseman for the Astros, hit a home run, but then proceeded to make the exact same racist gesture to you, Darvish. Through a translator, Yuli Gurriel stated the following. In Cuba, we call everybody who is from Asia, China. I know it's offensive to them and they don't like it, but they didn't mean to do it. In October, we saw Lazio supporters use Anne Frank's face on stickers with a Roma jersey. Lazio fans have a well-known culture of racism and xenophobia in their fan base as do many, many in in Italian football. Serie A, Serie B, Serie C, amateur and youth games all pledged to read parts of Anne Frank's diary in a small gesture before the matches began. We can also see complex manifestations of racism with sexism and misogyny, such as misogynoir, perfectly exemplified in a case like England's Football Association, and the one which we've mentioned quite a few times and burn it all down with Iniola Aluko, where she essentially battled her employer, the powers that be, all white men, to get some sort of justice and vindication for the abuse and stress she suffered by enduring racist comments by coaching staff, including former national women's team coach Mark Sampson. So, and this is also important to understand that Aluko mentioned, and we'll add this link to the show notes, that she also felt completely isolated because her teammates didn't support her. So this is not just between athletes or coaching staff. And we've also seen this complicity on behalf of other coaches and forums, where we've just heard about Brett Notistad, a golf coach, tweeting awful racist things to Bubba Wallace, who we spoke about last week. And I think this is really important to understand. Daryl Wallace Jr., lovingly known as as Bubba Wallace, is one of the first black 
drivers to compete at NASCAR. Since then, Nottis said resigned from his position. And I'm not exactly sure what, and we can we can talk about this a bit in detail if anyone knows, if both of you all know if, if he's going to get any reprimand. And some of the stories that I've mentioned as well in this piece are very much, we don't know what the end is happening. To my knowledge, Julie Guriel didn't receive any specific punishment yet. So, I mean, this is part of the problem. And in addition to all of this, I did also want to mention that media is complicit in this in so many ways. I mean, we've seen how Serena Williams is treated by media. We see how a hockey player, P.K. Subban, is also has been called out for quote unquote showboating when he's celebrating a goal. It's because the goal celebrations are different. So people or the achievements, you know, responses are different that mainstream media has often said that they're, you know, inappropriate or showboating or arrogant. And it's, it's simply racist. So, I mean, I don't have any solutions to this, but I just wanted to know what y'all thought about all this stuff other than wanting to like literally take a blowtorch to it. <laughs> yeah. I think accountability is a huge thing. Right. And I think, How do we ever fix these kind of deep systemic issues within any kind of institution, including sport? I did want to say there actually was, Guriel did get a suspension, and this was its own controversy because he was suspended for five games starting next season and didn't actually miss the last, what ended up being the last four games of the World Series. He would have been the first player ever in baseball history to be suspended during the World Series, and he actually got what is now the longest punishment levied against a player for a public act of racism during a baseball game. The last one was two games to Yunel Escobar back in 2012 when he wrote homophobic stuff in his eye black strips. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. And so this was really controversial. Like people felt, I mean, Jessica Mendoza at ESPN was very vocal that she felt like Guriel should have been suspended for the World Series to really punish him. And You know, one of the things that Rob Manfred, who is the commissioner of Major League Baseball, one of the things he said was that he chose not to do it because it would have actually punished all the other Astros who didn't do this, right? I mean, that kind of is the point, though, right? Like, these these are team sports, and when one of your teammates is racist to the other team, like, maybe everyone should get some sort of punishment from that, even if they weren't the ones actually doing it. Maybe that's part of how accountability works. I will say... You know, Manfred also said Guriel's statement of contrition was a factor. He also wanted Guriel to feel the financial impact of the penalty. And this is maybe something to think about. That wouldn't have happened in the World Series because of how the players receive salaries for that. He is scheduled to earn $12 million next season. And so he'll roughly lose 320000 because of the suspension. I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means to make $12 million. So I don't know what it means to like be fined $320,000. <laughs> You're making $12 million. And it also has to do with he wanted Guriel to be able to appeal the same way that or in the way that he thought was most fair. So I don't know. Yeah, accountability is a huge thing. And, I, and I'm not really sure that people are being held accountable in a way that will actually change things. Well, in terms of accountability, we also see organizations like Fairnet who, that, that are based in Europe, you know, monitoring places like soccer stadiums and they train people to go. And I mean, I've worked with Fairnet, like I've been on their panels for diversity of women in football and, and things like that. And I mean, I appreciate some of the stuff that they do, but it's I don't know if that's the only solution, because, like, you know, the question essentially is how do we completely cut out? these systems. I mean, going back to what the, the Lazio thing, we have a history of a complete anti-Semitism and it's it's appalling. And I, it's hard for me. So I couldn't read out the tweets by Nostad that Bubba Wallace responded to. Like, I, they're just upsetting. But I have issues with them, people being re-triggered as well. Like, but, you know, is, is work that kick it out uh, that organization the UK does, is that enough? Fahrenheit, is that enough? Like, we need more. Bren, what do you think? Well, I think one of the difficulties about an organization like Fairnet is that they're funded by UEFA. And so the money comes from from a place in the global north, and a lot of the policing goes on in the global south. And there's a resentment there that comes. I mean, I study Chile, which is the most fined country in the world right now for homophobic and racist chants. And the sentiment, I can tell you from just having come there twice, 
is one that fair doesn't understand the language that they cannot translate. There's a particular phrase right now that's being considered for for misogyny or gender violence. I think they're they're totally wrong. I think fair's completely right to, to do all of these fines. But to have these organizations in the center of global capital, to have them emanating from Europe is is going to be a real problem with domestic soccer leagues in the global south and the way in which they take these messages seriously in my opinion. You know, so I don't know, I like a lot of what fair does. I like the idea of collective punishment. I agree with it. The idea that, you know, you're punishing fans by, you know, not having games in the stadiums where they're supposed to be held. You're punishing teams with financial, you know, fines and things like that. I, I think you're you're punishing the culture as a whole. And if you're a person who's participating in it, you have to be accountable for, for that culture as a whole. So I do like that approach of, of FAIR. I just think that there's a problem with where it is, where the money comes from, and also the fact that there's an assumption that racism doesn't happen in women's football. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, talking about Enia Luko, I mean, th- that's a perfect case, right? I mean, just because they're not chanting, you know, in the same way or they don't have the same fan culture doesn't mean it doesn't happen in the locker room, doesn't mean it's not happening in the stands, right? But I feel like it's not getting the attention that it needs to have. I don't know. For me, you know, as much as sport can, like, generate goodwill, it generates bad will. And... And we're going to talk about that with the Olympics, right? So on the one hand, these international conflicts or regional conflicts look like, oh, yeah, you know, we're going to like build these bridges. But to be honest with you, a lot of times it just stokes the rivalry and bad feelings between the two different groups. So it's not a foregone conclusion that sport is like this awesome, you know, bridge between cultures. It can it can frequently stoke hate and we know that. So I think it's it's. It, you know, fair has to be a guardian of it, but I think there has to be a lot more than fair. And critique of fair, right? Like, I think that's good to be pointing out, like, the limits that they can do mm-hmm. on this issue, right? So, Shireen, what do you think? I'm feeling really humbled because, I mean, first of all, you're right, Brenda's a genius. But I think the the other issue is that <laughs> I didn't – no, I'm just getting back to your intro. Just the idea that – Fair doesn't monitor women's football. I like. I'm ashamed to admit I never even thought of that. And this is. I, I'm speaking as someone who has spoken about women's football with Fair, and I've worked with Discover Football, who I who I think are amazing, and they actually use sport as a means of empowering women and 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 with language barriers and whatnot. And and I I think they're an amazing organization, mostly run by women as well. But that whole thing, like I'm sitting back and going, wow, I need to reassess because you're right. A lot of the reporting that comes out at World Cup is, is is, is you know completely it's obviously the the men's world cup is is men and that's where they have a, a bigger presence and i mean i think there's also this expectation that when the women's world cup was held in canada i don't believe fairna was here like i don't know i could be wrong about that but just the understanding that oh it wouldn't happen at women's soccer in canada like oh my gosh that's like almost like saying there's no racism mm-hmm. in Canada, which we all know is bullshit. Mm-hmm. So like you know they were here and hopefully they I definitely definitely hope they're in France. Like, I definitely hope that that's on the plan because, like, that's the first thing I think of. I think of France football. I'm sorry. I think of Islamophobia. I think of xenophobia. It's the first thing that I think of, despite the fact (laughs) that France has a massive roster of, you know, North African descendant players. It doesn't preclude people from making horrible statements. So, you know, when I saw the Women's World Cup match between, I believe it was South Korea and, and, and Mexico, there was a fellow in front of me. And this is my first international women's match that I had seen screaming out like horrible things. And luckily, my best friend went at him like we're literally battling the patriarchy in a football stadium, Lansdowne Stadium in Ottawa. But that's the reality. So I do hope FAIR and other organizations are on the ball. Like there needs to be way more, way more women's football. I think what's really interesting about this conversation and listening to the two of you talk about this, and I know we say this all the time, but it's just so clear that like sport is not separate from life, right? So like all the, it's not an escapism, like it is so much a reflection of what's already going on. So this idea, I loved what Brenda said about how it's not just goodwill that sports builds, like it can also do very bad things, which is life, right? So I don't know. I you know, Shireen, you had something that you wanted to say in order to close out this segment. I do. I wanted to read the passage written by Anne Frank, 
one of the millions Holocaust victims on July 15, 1944, she wrote, quote, I see the world being slowly transformed into a wilderness. I hear the approaching thunder that one day will destroy us too. I feel the suffering of millions. And yet, when I look up at the sky, I somehow feel that everything will change for the better, that this cruelty too shall end, that peace and tranquility will return once more. The Winter Olympics began in Pyeongchang, South Korea, on February 9, 2018. We have talked repeatedly on this show about the ethical and moral issues behind being fans of this mega event because of the many problems they bring to the communities and countries that host them, including the displacement of people, irresponsible use of public funds, political and financial corruption, the militarization of local police forces, etc. At the same time, we're a bunch of sports fans, and it's hard to find a more exciting or better showcase for the wide range of athleticism and sport than what exists at the Olympics. So while I am sure we will certainly talk about the problems with the Olympics before Pyeongchang, today we wanted to share stories about athletes that have been coming out in the recent weeks as they prepare to compete. Brenda, do you want to get us started? (laughs) I would love to. So yeah, 88 days from now when we're recording, but who's counting? Since I was a little girl, those human interest stories, you know, that they used to have on TV choked me up in some kind of way that was also fun to delve into. And I think I learned a lot about geography. I dreamed about other parts of the world. Yeah, the Olympics are are a bad vice for me. I've been starting to look at the Twitter handles, like at US Paralympics, and they're putting out already all of these wonderful stories that are getting me excited. And the first people that got me excited were the two North Koreans that qualified at the end of September. They're figure skaters, Ryam, Tai Ok, and Kim Jusik, and they are adorable. <laughs> they are adorable. I mean, first of all, think about the fact that the president of the United States, Donald Trump, is in a Twitter fight or something about about whatever um, you call it. Yeah, yeah, I don't I don't even know. So I guess I have like this desire to see North Korean people as people instead of this hyper focus on these two men, neither of whom have convinced me about their political efficacy. (laughs) And so I tried to do a bit of research on these figure skaters. And apart from like propaganda, it's almost impossible. Their coach answers most of the questions that are directed at them. When they appear in the news, it's usually just the same sort of rhetoric when, I, when I've seen translated bits. So what I did is I watched their performance, which we can put in the show notes, at the World Championships in Helsinki. And they performed to A Day in the Life by the Beatles. Oh, nice. And, uh, yeah, but this slow, stylized version. Oh, wow. And they're wearing these subdued gray and black outfits. And I have to say, I, I love the women figure skater pant look. Mm -hmm. And I may or may not have cried two or maybe three times, (laughs) but but it's like they get to the part, right, where it's like, I read the news today, oh boy, right? And like, Mm -hmm. and I was like, you and me both, you and me both, and they're beautiful, and they're beautiful, like just, I don't know, I, I loved it. So it's not clear that North Korea will send the delegation, but the fact that they actually qualified makes it possible you know makes it possible that north korea is going to send one and it's south korea so of course it's a really big deal so that's so that's the first thing maybe i should hold off and see who you guys are excited about because i have like a whole roster but that's my first (laughs) that's my first one all right shireen what about you okay so i know i talk a lot about women's hockey in canada which will forever excite me and make me extremely happy i'm gonna go with curling now i'm gonna go with curling because canadian women's curling has a legacy like we are a dynasty and there's this really great there's excitement about it and i mean i will admit other than the queen of hearts tournament that happens you know annually i really don't pay attention regularly to curling leagues i mean 
and I feel like I should because it's really interesting. It's a great sport. And for those of you who don't know what curling is, it's just two teams compete on ice. They don't wear skates, but they have rocks and they literally are sweeping on the ice to knock the rocks of the other team out of a certain target area. So it's it's just it's just it's incredibly fascinating. There's a huge culture of it here. And since in my entire life, Colleen Jones, who is now a broadcaster, sports broadcaster with the CBC, she was queen of the Canadian national team. And I'm just, you know, I'm not going to say things and talk about how many gold medals we have. We have five. And just <laughs> talk about, like, how often we've won the world championships, 12. I think that it's important to recognize also now that other countries, particularly Nordic countries, are coming, come for us. They're coming for us. They're coming for Canada. They're coming because the level of curling, particularly the attention paid to the sport is really exciting and it's something that and curlers curling fans also are diehards like they follow this stuff they're roadies they travel and it's it's one of the first sports where I saw some type of equitable treatment between men's and women's team I'm not saying that they get the same amount of support financially from from the associations I don't know I will look into it actually but I just the hype about it was a really big deal for me so I'm and also a couple of months ago the uniforms the Canadian Olympic team uniforms came out and they're adorable like there's mittens and toques and I mean we do that almost as better as good as anybody in the world like mittens and toques like our mittens are just absolutely fabulous so I'm all about that and there was no like appropriation of indigenous culture in the designs this time which has happened before so they're like I mean come on it's the winter olympics they're like parkas and Canada does parkas so that for me I'm really excited about this curling tell me if I'm wrong but I feel like in the last winter olympics there was a female curler who was like noticeably pregnant yeah which was so amazing <laughs> that there was an athlete noticeably pregnant being amazing at the olympics yeah we don't actually often see that in winter olympics we have seen it in the summer olympics like I know with the air rifle in, in, in competition in brazil there was mm. a woman who was like eight months pregnant or something like that and, oh and that's they, right so but with winter yeah. you see it less because a lot of the sports are like on ice and on on, yeah, know, dangerous. Snow. <laughs> kind of dangerous. So, right, right. She was, she was very. It's a very strategic. Like, it's not slow moving. It's actually, it's like very. You can get really tense. I've been tense in a curling match before, which I know y'all are like. All right. How is it's not exactly. You, the most. you might get me to watch one. Okay. I might watch one this time around, just, just so I can come back and report to you, Shereen. Yeah, I would love. I would love that. It was just. Some, I'm, I'm pretty excited about curling. Can I ask something about the outfits? Yes. And yes. Cur- curling. Do they have, I'm trying to remember right now, do they have gloves? I think it depends on the position you play because the sweepers, I believe, okay. wear gloves, but just say other point people don't. And I think that it, it's also important, like, you know, it's, it's cool. It's on ice, but they do wear, like, they've always worn pants which is something that I've in my recollection that I think is really great. It wasn't like they had skirts and the men had pants. Like they've always worn pants. And that's something else nice. that I think is kind of cool. Cause in, while I was growing up, you saw these formidable non-sexualized athletes on ice. And, and, and again, you know, we could talk about lack of diversity because the team is all white coaching staff is all white, yeah. but I mean that, you know, that could be a conversation for another time too. But, you know, I, close to where I used to live in Toronto when I was younger, there was actually an elderly community that had curling and it was incredibly diverse. The, 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 like the senior citizens that participated in curling, it was incredible. Like, I mean, you saw people from South Asia and, and, and Chinese elders curling. So, I mean, I'm nice. sure it exists somewhere. We just might not see it at the upper echelons of curling. That's lovely. So I am looking forward to one of the greatest sports rivalries that exists today, which is the U.S. women's hockey team going up against the Canadian women's hockey team. These two teams. (laughs) Yeah, right. It's like burn it all down. (laughs) Problems. (laughs) And I'm the only Canadian on this team. (laughs) You have to hold it down, Shereen. So these two teams are amazing. They've combined to win all five gold medals, and they've met in all but one Olympic final because Sweden defeated the U.S. in the semifinals of 2006. Canada has defeated the U.S. in the last two finals. The Americans haven't won gold since 1998. The teams have met in all 18 (laughs) World Championship finals, with the U.S. winning seven of the last eight. By mid-December, these two teams will have played up to eight games against each other in the span of two months in preparation 
to play when they get to South Korea. And the idea, everyone believes that we will see them in the final on February 22nd when we get to that point and we will see which one wins the gold medal. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what these two teams do once they actually get to the Olympics because we will know so much. Uh, They will know so much about each other and we will know so much about them and how they play against one another. Brenda, do you want to go next? Yeah, I also want to mention that the Paralympics start March 8th. And it's always, I I wonder what the arguments are for having them offset from the Olympics. It always kind of annoys me. It really annoys me. And, but there could be really good arguments in the power community about why that that's the case. You know, I haven't, I haven't read enough, so I don't, I don't want to sort of off the hip say something in ignorance, but for me personally, I would prefer that it was integrated so I could get all of my human interest stories at one time. <laughs> I, could right, cry, right. I could cry in a row. But yeah, I'm really looking also for, for that, for to sled hockey. Mm. And the U.S. has won twice huh. in a row. And they're this is the men's. And they're coming back to try to be the first team to get three, I believe. And there's this goalkeeper, a goaltender. I guess in hockey you say goaltender. Is that right, Shireen? Yeah, it's goaltender. What, for- what's the difference between tender and keeper? I think that's so that's so fascinating semantically. Like one yeah. seems sweeter. Like- well, well, in English, in English it's different, but in French, where there's so much a hockey culture as well, you'd say gardien du but, and that's the same in for soccer and hockey so it depends linguistically what you're looking at so justin i think it's maybe i have actually no idea it would be something to look into i could look up the there's a woman on twitter i think her name is the nhl historian she goes by jan i'll find her handle she's always tweeting out facts like this and i I, she's a really great follow and well we have we got to get ready before the olympics we have eight days Here we go. So goaltender Steve Cash. Anyway, tender. They just say goalie. That's all they say is goalie. (laughs) No, but it's not. It's it's really, I I think it's more, I'm like afraid of the complication. Goaltender Steve Cash. Yeah. Anyway, is an amputee as a result of childhood cancer. And evidently he's like the boss. He holds all of Mm. these records and like almost every record in U.S. sled hockey history. And he just seems like a wonderfully interesting person and he's going to be there. And apparently this team has played together for a very, very long time. So I'm pretty interested in the Paralympics as well. And I'm, I'm looking forward to them getting some more coverage, you know, as we get closer. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. Shereen, do you have anything else? Well, I mean, I just wanted to add one more thing about curling because I know I haven't said enough. It's just that the team captain is called the skipper which I think is so much fun <laughs> just generally like how can that, that make you fun. how can that make you not love them even more <laughs> I did want to say one thing I've kind of been interesting and this isn't just going off of oh I love the movie Cool Runnings, but there was a GoFundMe starter created by the Nigeria women's bobsled team last year, and they reached their $75,000 goal for training, and I need to check up on them and see how they're doing, and, you know, they're Nigerian bobsled team, and they would be the first one, first ever African representative, male or female, to qualify for Winter Olympic Games. In this in the sport wow. of bobsledding, so we need to check up on that as well and see how they're doing, and we'll report back to our readers. But like, I I found this through the outlet, the root. There, I found out about them, and they're first of all, the pictures are totally badass, like they're incredible. So just to sort of because that kind of stuff intrigues me also. Like you know, as the world's getting quote unquote smaller, what does it look like for countries that are not that have no snow? to you know like or don't have access to the resources and facilities and training that want to participate so that's i think something else we can talk about it but i'm 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 looking at them so yeah i totally want to piggyback off of that shereen because amanda doyle wrote a great piece for excel sports earlier this month which we'll link to Mm -hmm. and it's about how winter athletes train when there's no ice or snow Mm -hmm. and it's so interesting because not only does she like explain how they manage this from some of it is like from creating equipment that simulates the feel of the sport. So they work the necessary muscles to jumping off of giant ramps into huge airbags since there's no snow to soften the landing. Wow. And the thing that she did is she actually compiled a bunch of videos 
mm. of athletes that athletes have posted showing them doing all these things. And it's just really fun to see it. Mm. And you get to so you get to see Lindsey Vaughn juggle while balancing and Brittany Bowie rollerblade, which apparently people still do. And I also <laughs> learned that there are roller skis, which I didn't know about. Roller skis. Fascinating. Yeah, you got to see the video. So we'll link to that. I want them. (laughs) Yeah, right. I know. All right, Brenda, you want to wrap it up for us? Yeah, just in addition, this is the last fun thing for now uh, about South Korea. Apparently, many of the athletes are trying to up their karaoke game in recognition that there's a significant number of venues to sing and would like to say so far the only athlete that's come out with with her song is Lindsay Vaughn who says she's ready for Shania Twain's I Feel Like a Woman (laughs) (laughs) I'm so psyched Up next, Shireen interviews professional ice hockey player for the Boston Pride and the National Women's Hockey League, Kalia Johnson. I am so happy to be speaking with Kalia Johnson of Boston Pride. Kalia is a 22-year-old former Boston College player. She played with the Connecticut Whales and she was considered a top defender. In the summer of 2017, she signed a one-year contract with the Boston Pride. Now, this Boston College graduate also majored in sociology and psychology and was part of the U.S. 2012 team that won the silver at the under-18 World Championships. She is originally from L.A. and now Boston is home. Kalia, thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Can you tell me a little bit about was there a moment that you fell in love with hockey or was it just sort of like always part of your experience? I would say the first time that I got on the ice and I kind of figured out how to skate fast, I just fell in love with skating around in circles and feeling the cold air on my face. That's something that always puts a smile on my face. So I think that was probably the turning moment for me in terms of skating in general and the hockey games are just so much fun. So it just, I can't really complain about having fun all the time. <laughs> was there a large hockey, ice hockey scene when you were young? Because you come from a sort of not a traditional home of hockey. You come from a warm climate. <laughs> so was there a, was there a, like a big scene? Were there a lot of your friends playing hockey at the time? No, there wasn't actually. I didn't know one in my school played hockey. Like you said, I come from a warm climate. I grew up playing boys hockey because there was no local girls rank near me. The closest one was Anaheim, California, and they started, they didn't start a girls program until I was about eight and a half. So I played boys hockey up until I was 13, started girls at eight, and then I did both. And ironically, the person who showed me how to skate was my Hopkido teacher, which was actually across the street from an ice rink, Culver City Ice <laughs> Rink. So he's the one that actually got me started into it. But as I started growing up, and you see now, if you look at high schools in LA and Anaheim and Orange County, a lot more schools are having ice hockey teams that are boys and girls programs, which is awesome to think about. And you have amazing players coming out of California and Arizona who are now coming onto the scene of the NWHL. So I think it's really grown since since I was younger. So getting back to that and even looking at now hockey back then and, and still is a predominantly, it's not the most diverse sport out there. It's probably one of the ones where we see the smallest sort of group of minorities. Like for example, in the NHL, there's probably about 30 black pairs players out of rosters of 700. What do the numbers look like in NWHL, and are you a little more hopeful about maybe growing the game for people of color or women of color? I would definitely love to see more women of color playing ice hockey. It's funny because when I would be at the rink with one of my past teammates, Blake Bolden, and we just happened to see a younger black girl playing hockey, we'd get so excited because it's a rare sight. And I think it would be amazing to get more people of color involved in hockey because it's a predominantly white sport. In terms of the NWHL, I think there's only 
two black girls that play in the NWHL and then there's a few other minorities, but it's, you can still see in our level that it's predominantly white, but I think there's being a huge push for more women of color, more men of color to play hockey. Um, Boston Scores, I know, does a great program with that with the Bruins. They have a try hockey program, which I think is amazing. The first woman of color I think I knew of who played hockey was Julie Chu. Yes, yes. And even though I'm like very, very Canadian in my support for that, the hockey program, I love Julie Chu. I think she's amazing. She's charismatic and she's fantastic. And I was really excited because I played ice hockey for a season and a half when I was really little and I loved it. And I think I know you're a Detroit Red Wings fan, but I am a very adamant Montreal Canadiens and Le Canadien fan. When you were younger, who did you look to? as a role model in hockey. And despite the fact that there might not have been massive representation, who did you look at for that to to push yourself and say, I want to be like this player? When I was younger, my mother introduced me to a book about Willie O'Ree. I know it's an old name, but he's the pioneer for men's hockey. And I thought his story was just amazing. And obviously at that age, you don't think that you can be a huge advocate but now that I'm growing up I really kind of can relate and say that there's little girls especially of color that look up to me there's a few girls in women's youth program that I coach that I really got to know over the past couple years of just seeing them around the ranks and as I implemented more coaching into my day-to-day life I just found that I really do have this platform that I can encourage people of any racial background, but especially those of color and be that kind of look up to them. So I think the fact that obviously it was a little hard for me to find someone that I could relate to at the moment in terms of women's hockey, but I think the fact that there was someone out there like Willie O'Ree and then there's people in the NHL now that are of color and that are doing amazing things. So I think in general, I was just looking up to anyone that, that I could relate to. And so that was a huge, huge part of why I continued to play is that I knew that I wasn't going to be alone in the long run. Oh, that's that's amazing. And the work you do is so important. And even seeing you on skates and seeing you do the work you do. And you're working as a coordinating volunteer engagement for a nonprofit now called Building Impacts. Can you tell me how that ties into your hockey? And do you use your hockey experience to, to advance that work? Yeah, so Building Impact, I got involved with because while I was a student athlete at BC, I was very passionate about using this platform that I had been given as a student athlete. And it was, you could really see it at BC because one in 16 students there were student athletes. So there is, there is a lot of us. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. It's crazy to think about. So we had this kind of a platform and people were looking up to us to kind of be a role model and there was a lot of kids in the area and hockey teams and soccer teams whatever it may have been so I got really involved with our student athlete advisory committee which is our SAC board and Mm -hmm. I wanted to do everything I could to give back to the community around us because some people don't realize that even as a student athlete in college there's a lot of kids looking up to you even if you're the star player the person sits on the bench the water, like the manager, whatever it is, they're they're in awe on the fact that you are on a college hockey team. And so I became very passionate about giving back to the community and the number of schools around us. And so that really transferred over to Building Impact. And I'm currently working with my company now to try to implement a little bit more sports into what we do and what we give back to. We work with a number of different nonprofits around the Boston area. Mm-hmm. As of now, we don't have too many sports nonprofit partners that we work with, but I'd love to increase that. So I'm trying to help them increase and give back to the sports. And so we're all really excited about that. 
So in addition to this full-time work you do with building impacts, it's so powerful and really important. You're also playing your full-time roster on Boston Pride. So how does that balance? And just for people that don't know, currently NWHL players are paid or not paid? Because, I mean, there's some discussion about they are or they're not. And how do you balance a full-time job with being a professional hockey player? <laughs> I've learned over the past couple of years. Thankfully, this year, I'm not driving to Connecticut three times a week. So that's definitely helped. But so I go to work from nine to five. And then depending on where practice is at Wednesday or Friday night, I usually have a couple hours of downtime before I have to get in the car and go to practice. Mm-hmm. My team at work and our organization in general, especially our CEO, is very adamant about the work-life balance and they absolutely love that I play hockey. They actually, my whole team came to our home opener last weekend. So that was pretty awesome. (laughs) Yeah, they bought t-shirts and everything. It was so funny. (laughs) And then in terms of the paying aspect, we did take pay cuts last year and the league has been doing a good job of remaining the fact that they want to pay us and they want to help support us. But they also understand that a lot of us have nine to fives or we're in school full time, whatever we may be doing with our careers. So practices are at late, late at night from like eight or it's nine o'clock. And then in terms of pay, we go by a tier level system. I believe it's tier one, tier two and tier three. Mm-hmm. So I think they're doing their best to kind of keep those that are been in the league all three years or two years in the tier one level. And then it just kind of trickles down from there. They really want to give back to those who've been there from the start and recognize them. So just another question I was going to have was sort of about, I was wondering if you said there's only, you know, maybe two black women that play in NWHL and then just maybe a handful of, of women of color. If the topic of kneeling during anthem had come up at all and whether that was something you had considered or something you might feel that you had support around if you wanted to do anything or not wanted to do anything. Has that come up at all in the locker room amongst you and your teammates? I will say that it was brought up last year when it was all first started and then the whole Colin Kaepernick thing really started to take off and the media started taking off with it. It was talked about. In terms of my personal view, I'm a huge, huge fan of what he's doing. I think it is very important to, like I said, back to what I was saying earlier, is to use your platform to speak up for other people that can't speak up for themselves. I personally don't think that I will be kneeling during the anthem. I don't think I have that much of a pool in terms of my kind of my status and that sort of stuff. But I'm always a huge fan of his and what he's doing. And I think it takes tremendous gut and just in general, all that he's done outside of football. He's always giving back. And I think he took a huge risk in doing this. And for him to do that, I think it's just unbelievable. I was wondering if you could tell me, this is, I read this anecdote and I thought it was amazing, why you wore number 10 in your first year of pro hockey. Yes, of course. So I wore number 10 to honor my mother. My mom grew up playing basketball. She played professionally. She played overseas. And then I kind of came along and ruined that little dream of hers. <laughs> But so she played in the league that was like the startup of the WNBA, which I thought was amazing. And I envied her and all that she's done with basketball and she continues to do with basketball today. And her number was number 10 as well. So it was my dedication to her and all that she's done for me and the sacrifices that she's made. And it was the least I could do to honor her and honor her legacy in basketball. That's amazing. So you come from like a family of athletes and like totally amazing pioneers. I want to thank you so much for this. It was awesome to talk to you and good luck with this season. And I'm sure we'll be hearing really good stuff from you and congratulations on everything you're doing. Boston is very lucky to have you.
Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. We like to call it the burn pile, where we pile up all the things we've hated this week in sport and set them aflame. Brenda, do you want to get us started? Sure. This week, I throw the Colombian FA and Adidas on the burn pile in their infinite lack of wisdom because what they've done is come out with a lovely new national team jersey this past week. So Adidas's PR folks probably generated this, and then the Colombian Federation, the Soccer Federation, had to approve it. James Rodriguez uh, was the obvious choice to premiere the male jersey. And the obvious choice for the FA to premiere the women's national team jersey was former Miss Universe Paulina Vega. Uh. So, like, <laughs> huh. <laughs> yeah, huh. It, so the women soccer players were a little bit befuddled is a kind word. Furious is probably more accurate that that had been the choice, right? And that with all respect to Paulina Vega, it was ridiculous to not have one of the athletes premiere it just as, as there had been for the men. And my feeling about all of this this week was like, I just like sort of shrugged my shoulders and I felt like it's stale. This is so stale. This is so, so stale. It's 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 moldy bread you can't even toast. It's stale. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's the worst. Yeah. And we just keep doing yeah. it over and over and over again. And then they just apologize and blah, blah, blah. And it, it I, I don't, I want to throw it on the burn pile. I also want it to spark another flame of maybe continuing to to consider women organizing outside of FIFA and their FAs because, mm. because this is just, this is just so old. It's so mm -hmm. old. <laughs> so that's my burn pile. So let's throw it in there. Yeah. Burn it. Burn it. Burn. So this week, Two employees at Creighton University got in trouble for publicly criticizing the school's head basketball coach, Lauren Ward and Meredith Lierk, two women who work as advocates at Creighton's Violence Intervention and Prevention Center, are under review because of an op-ed they wrote in the student paper. Ward and Lyric were upset with head basketball coach Greg McDermott and athletic director Bruce Rasmussen for giving former player Maurice Watson Jr. an NCAA ring and McDermott, the coach, specifically for posting a picture with Watson on Twitter where Watson and McDermott are hugging and holding up the ring together. According to the two women, Watson had been expelled by Creighton, banned and barred from the university, and convicted of third-degree assault in Nebraska for an assault of a female student. This was after another woman reported Watson for sexual assault and he was charged, but those charges were eventually dropped for the reasons that these cases are often dropped. Creighton will only say that Watson is not enrolled, but will not tell us whether or not he was banned or barred. Ward and Lyric's letter is no longer publicly available, but according to Deadspin, the women asked that McDermott and Rasmussen go above and beyond compliance with NCAA sexual assault prevention by deleting that picture and proving that no Creighton money was spent on the ring. Creighton spokesman Jim Bershite said the issue is that Warden Lyric held the AD and coach's feet to the public fire and did not, instead, keep it private and in-house. According to the Omaha World Herald, quote, Bershite said that the letter doesn't represent the views of Creighton's administration and that the conduct of the employees is under scrutiny. He declined to say whether they might be disciplined and called it a personnel matter. The employees under scrutiny and who might be disciplined are, of course, not the coach and athletic director, but are Ward and Lyric. These are two advocates trying to intervene at the often problematic intersection of sport and gendered violence, and they might pay a very real professional price for that. Burn it. Burn, burn it. Ugh. All right, Shereen, why don't you wrap it up? What do you want to burn this week? Okay, so we know that Sepp Blatter and FIFA are in a constant burn pile, and it, we will probably talk about <laughs> always more burning. of this. Always burning. <laughs> and so especially with the allegations of by Hope Solo coming out and saying that he accosted her sexually during the FIFA, one of the FIFA award ceremonies, which, you know, uh. I think is really important to pay attention to because this is, we're talking about power structures and then powerful positions. And this is so much of what this is about as well. That's not what I, although that's always in the incinerator, I did really want to talk about the New Zealand Black Ferns rugby team. And thank you to Aubrey Bloomfield, a listener and a friend of the show, for fellow flamethrower, for you know, kind of pointing this out, is that there's this article in the link in the show notes about pay gap in, in the teams because the All Blacks, New Zealand All Blacks are the world champions, are in, arguably the best rugby squad in, in, 
in the world. The Black Ferns are also world championships. So when we use words like gender pay gap, there's no pay gap because the women are not paid. So how can you have a gap if they don't even have a salary? Like, I just get upset wow. by seeing that. So I want to first clarify that, that there's no pay gap because women aren't paid. You can't compare apples and nothing. Like, it doesn't work like that. So, <laughs> and especially when nearly one in six rugby players in New Zealand are female and up to more than 10% from last year with the biggest growth among girl, younger girls. And this is from an article from Radio NZ that will link. But when you have those numbers of this sport that is being loved by young girls and by women, and, you know, in, in New Zealand has a huge tradition of indigenous culture woven in, they even have a Maori specific team that feeds into the national team. I think this is really important. And it speaks to a lot of, you know, diversity. But then again, you add in the the, the issue of women and sexism and misogyny. And I'm so frustrated by this. And I want to see these women paid for their time. And even some players are speaking, some of the black ferns, the women, they say, you know, they, they do take a pay cut, to which is essentially they don't get paid. And then getting paid would increase an increase of them for, for the players would mean that they can actually focus on developing their game more instead of paying bills which we see so much with many women around the world. And we've talked about it endlessly on the show. So I want to burn that forever. Burn, burn. After all that burning, it's time to celebrate some remarkable women in sports this week with our Badass Woman of the Week segment. First, our honorable mentions. It's another week and more athletes are coming forward about abuse and assault that they faced. We want to recognize Diana Nyad, the long-distance swimmer who wrote a piece at the New York Times about abuse that she faced at the hands of her coach as a girl. Allie Reisman, a gold medalist gymnast, has publicly added her name to the very long list of gymnasts assaulted by former USA Gymnastics doctor Larry Nasser. And as Shireen just mentioned in the former segment, Hope Solo came forward about being assaulted by Sepp Blatter at a FIFA event. As the college basketball season kicked off this weekend, two WNBA stars were honored by their college teams. Kayla McBride of the San Antonio Stars had her name added to the Ring of Honor at Notre Dame, and the University of Oklahoma retired the jersey of Dallas Wings' Courtney Paris. Listener and fellow flamethrower Shane Thomas tweeted us about Australian rugby player Elise Perry. Shane wrote, quote, only the seventh woman to hit a test cricket double hundred may have single-handedly won the women's ashes for Australia. Thank you, Shane, and congratulations, Elise. Also, congratulations to Switzerland's Manuela Schar and the U.S.'s Tanya McFadden, who came in first and second, respectively, in the wheelchair division at last weekend's New York City Marathon. All right, y'all. Can I get a drum roll? Uh, I, can't, I can't even do it. I can't make that sound. Shereen. You got to practice, man. You got to practice. It's the best part. Okay. <laughs> All right. Our badass woman of the week is Shalane Flanagan, who won the New York Marathon last Sunday in two hours, 26 minutes, 53 seconds, fast enough to beat the three-time defending champion, Mary Katani of Kenya. And so she became the first American woman to win since Mickey Gorman in 1977. And for those of you who don't know, that's 26.2 miles. (sighs) Beyond that, though... I know, right? Beyond that, though, Flanagan works hard to elevate other women runners. This weekend, the New York Times ran a piece by Lindsey Krauss called How the Shalane Flanagan Effect Works. Quote, perhaps Flanagan's bigger accomplishment lies in nurturing and promoting the rising talent around her, a rare quality in the cutthroat world of elite sports. Every single one of her training partners, 11 women in total, has made it to the Olympics while training with her. Wow. An extraordinary feat. Aww. Flanagan told Krauss, quote, I thoroughly enjoy working with other women. I think it makes me a better athlete and person. It allows me to have more passion toward my training and racing. When we achieve great things on our own, it doesn't feel nearly as special. For her win, but also for what she's done for women in her sport, Shalane Flanagan is our Badass Woman of the Week. Finally this week, we're pleased to welcome back Stacey May Fowles to Burn It All Down. In this short piece, she remembers the pitcher Roy Holiday, who passed away earlier this week. Over the last few years, I have written a lot of words in an attempt to decipher that inexplicable bond between athlete and fan. 
I think I've done so because I wanted to understand how it is possible to feel so connected to all these talented people we've never met, why we love these men and women so much, why they have the capacity to move us to such intense emotions, the kind we may struggle to otherwise have. In doing so, I've wanted to acknowledge how much they can help us, even save us, without even knowing our names. As a baseball fan, I have needed to understand why this game, but perhaps, more importantly, its players, can have such an incredibly therapeutic effect on those who invest in their wins and losses. Maybe I embarked on this project for selfish reasons, because I was struck by the intensity of the feeling when it first hit me personally, alone on a couch, deeply depressed, and feeling like I wanted to die. How much I was moved by a pitcher on the mound. His solidity, his focus, his transcendence. How he had the capacity to heal and help and give me a real sense of solace in a world that offered so little at the time. For anyone who loves the game of baseball, you know that watching a pitcher at work can, at times, without exaggeration, feel spiritual. For a person like myself, who had never experienced that connection, who needed it so much in the moment I received it, I wanted to honor it the best way I could. And maybe, no matter how hard I try, I will never come to understand it. But I know it's real. And I know it's real because of the outpouring of sentiment and love and sorrow I have seen in the past few days, since the baseball community has been leveled by learning that former pitcher Roy Halladay died in a plane crash off the coast of Florida. In the wake of this loss, baseball fans have exchanged sympathetic looks and hugs and stories. They've shared beautiful memories that celebrate him all making the loss all that more acute and searing. During this week, we have heard of his humility, his kindness, his selflessness, that after he left the game, he was just a regular guy trying to make the world better. We have commiserated and shared sorrow over how nonsensical, heartbreaking, and unjust this tragedy is, barely believing it to be true, even if life and death have proved repeatedly how unfair they are intent on being. Halliday was so much more than a great athlete, though that point is indisputable. He was the humble mentor, a leader, a man who put others before himself. He changed the lives of children. He rescued dogs. He was an adventurer who loved to fly. He was kind and he was generous and he was unassuming and the best of his era. So many fans have spoken effusively about his meaning, not only about the game as a whole, which is obvious given his talent and numerous accolades, but what he meant to them personally, at moments in their life when they needed the solidity and focus and the transcendence he offered. Amongst all these messages, there was a kind of gratitude, one that we often struggle to convey to those we admire. I didn't know you, but thank you for going out there on game day and making the hard things a little easier for me, it all seemed to say. I have often felt like the athlete, in particular the pitcher, sacrifices a part of himself so that we can feel whole, if only for a few precious hours. There is a generosity to this untraditional service. The way he puts his mind and his body through a grueling performance is able to master his fear and his anxiety in a harsh spotlight so we can find the possibility of precious fleeting joy. It is obvious that this eight-time All-Star, two-time Cy Young winner, with his perfect game and his postseason no-hitter, gave so many so much joy in the decade and a half that he played baseball and beyond. The immense gratitude for all that Halliday has given us only makes the grief so much harder to bear. So many words have been and will be written on Roy Halliday, because words help us through things, but we all know they are weak in the face of something like this. We know that nothing is fair and nothing is right, and nothing can be said. We all have to hold on to our empathy and the helpless but vital desire to comfort and care about each other. But the small solace that occurs to me as we reach out to each other in our shared grief is that the game of baseball and the community it fosters is, in its best light, based on the desire to connect and heal and to help. That we love it and devote ourselves to it, player and fan alike, because we know it can have the capacity to make things better. By so many reports we've seen in the last week, Halliday's kindness exemplified that impulse. All that is left to do is think of the joy that man on the mound gave us, how he brought us all together on game day and beyond, even if no words will come to solve the sorrow that he's gone. Thank you so much, Stacy. That was adapted from a recent installment of her wonderful newsletter, 
baseball life advice. You can get Stacy's newsletter, whose tagline is baseball, books, feminism, feelings for real, delivered directly into your inbox by signing up at tinyletter.com slash Stacy May Fowles. That's tinyletter.com slash S-T-A-C-E-Y-M-A-Y-F-O-W-L-E-S. Stacy's latest book is also called Baseball Life Advice, and we all here at Burn It All Down love it and recommend you get it from your local retailer as soon as you can. That's it for this week's episode. This episode was created with the help of Hofstra University. We thank them for their support. You can find Burn It All Down on Facebook and Twitter. If you want to subscribe to Burn It All Down, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. For information about the show and links and transcripts for each episode, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You can also email us from the site to give us feedback. We love hearing from you. If you enjoyed this week's show, please share this episode with family, friends, work colleagues, neighbors, people at the gym you talk sports with, whomever you think would be interested in Burn It All Down. Also, please rate the show at whichever place you listen to it. The ratings help us reach new listeners who need this feminist sports podcast but don't yet know it exists. Finally, please take some time to check out our GoFundMe page and consider making a small donation. We really want to improve this podcast and make it a sustainable endeavor. We're really grateful to everyone who has contributed so far. That's it for Burn It All Down. For Shireen Ahmed and Brenda Elsie, I'm Jessica Luther. Until next week. Hey!